1: Hi, this is Hold Your Fire, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. I'm Richard Atwood. Last week, the Ethiopian government and leaders from Ethiopia's northern Tigray region agreed to a cessation of hostilities. We're going to look today at whether the truce can bring an end to what's been a horrific war in northern Ethiopia.
0: War sides in the nearly two-year-long conflict-wracking northern Ethiopia have agreed to end fighting Wednesday. The Ethiopian government and rebels from the Tigray People's Liberation Front had been discussing conditions for peace under the aegis of the African Union. Speaking in Pretoria, South Africa, a UN envoy, Basanjo, broke the news. The two parties in the Ethiopian conflict have formally agreed to the cessation of hostilities, as well as to systematic, orderly. Smooth and coordinated disarmament.
1: That was the African Union envoy, former Nigerian President Olusegun Obasanjo, welcoming the secession of hostilities between the government of Ethiopian Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed and Tigrayan leaders from the Tigrayan People's Liberation Front, the TPLF, which dominated politics in Ethiopia for decades before Abiy came to power. It isn't the first time that an end to this war between Abiy's government and the TPLF appeared to be in sight. The early months of the fighting, at the end of 2020 and early last year, saw the Federal Army, together with Eritrean troops and forces from Amhara region, which borders Tigray, quickly advance, capturing Tigrayan capital Mekele. The Tigrayans regrouped, forced their enemies out of the region and marched south. Late last year, they even appeared to be advancing on the capital, Addis Ababa. Then, in turn, the Federal Army forced a Tigrayan retreat, The government declared a unilateral ceasefire in March this year. That broke down a few months later with a renewed federal and Eritrean offensive in Tigray. Here in Addis Ababa, support for the latest offensive by the Ethiopian army is high. In recent weeks, government troops have taken several large towns in the embattled Tigray region. With Tigray blockaded since the start of the fighting and most communication cut off, Tens of thousands are thought to have died, with millions more in desperate need of humanitarian aid. The agreement that was signed last week in South African capital Pretoria was actually pretty comprehensive for a secession of hostilities deal. It includes provisions on, amongst other things, the return of federal authority to Tigray and a transitional administration in the region. Tigrayan leaders also agreed, perhaps unexpectedly, to disarm all their forces within a month. That's a pretty big concession. Here's Tigray's representative at the talks, Gitachu Reda.
0: We have made painful concessions because addressing the pains of our people is far more important than the kinds of concessions we have made. Yes, we have made concessions because we have to build trust and we have to make sure that every one of us builds on
1: that trust. So should we see this as basically a negotiated surrender by the Tigrayans? Will the ceasefire hold and how magnanimous will Abiy be? Will Tigrayans disarm and what will happen to all the Eritrean forces that have been fighting alongside the Ethiopian army in Tigray? How optimistic should we be that this deal brings an end to the war? So to talk about all this, I'm very happy to welcome back onto the podcast Mariti Mutiga. Mariti, as most of our listeners know, is Crisis Group's Africa director. Mariti, welcome back on. Thanks, Richard. So why don't we start then with the cessation of hostilities that... TPLF, Tigrayan leaders and the Ethiopian government signed. Although it's a cessation of hostilities, it's really quite a comprehensive agreement. The government has in essence agreed to lift its designation of the TPLF as a terrorist organization, allow humanitarian aid in and return Tigrayan representation to Ethiopian institutions. But the Tigrayan leaders, the TPLF, have really conceded quite a bit. I mean, they've agreed, perhaps most significantly, to disarm, disarm entirely heavy weaponry and small weapons. They've got a timeline for doing that. It's a couple of weeks for the heavy weaponry and then a month for the smaller arms. They've agreed to allow federal authorities back into Tigray, restore federal control, in essence. And they pledged to stop pursuing an unconstitutional change of government, basically to recognise Abbey and stop trying... To topple him. So it's quite a a set of concessions from the Tigrayans. Do you want to just sort of say a word or two about the agreement? Is that a fair reading? Well, that
0: that captures it, Richard. But first I have to really reflect on the sense of relief there is, not just in Ethiopia, but in much of the region. We have to remember this has been a war fought at a truly horrific cost, you know, tens of thousands dead, hundreds of thousands displaced, not just in Tigray, but also in Afar and Amhara, uh, the neighboring regions millions facing starvation in Tigray, which has been the subject of this severe blockade that under any reading of international humanitarian law will be seen as collective punishment. So there's a huge sense of relief. Uh, An Ethiopian friend was just mentioning the other day. What a shock, but also a pleasant surprise it was to see these belligerents in one room that had been calling each other just weeks ago, terrorists and genocidaires and fascists sitting around the table and finally seeming to give peace a chance. I think we need to give credit to all parties despite the very atrocious conduct of this war, the Tigray People's Liberation Front, which is this party that has been preeminent in Ethiopia for three decades and governed Tigray um, for a long time. They seem to have realized they were holding a losing hand. They finally gave peace a chance. And also the federal authorities deserve some credit because they could easily have tried to attain a complete and total crushing um, uh, military victory, especially by marching into Mekele. But they too decided to give peace a chance. The substance of the agreement is much as you've called it they labelled it a permanent cessation of hostilities, which is a bit more than just a truce. In essence, the TPLF is supposed to disarm its forces in 30 days. They agreed to a very small monitoring mechanism. They agreed, as you mentioned, to very tight timelines. What's happening now? I think it's very encouraging that they had prescribed that within five days the military leadership from both sides should immediately commence negotiations, begin to discuss the terms of implementation. And we see that already the leaders of the military from the Tigray side and from the Federal side are in Nairobi, holding what by all accounts we hear are amicable talks. So that's encouraging that they seem to be uh, taking steps towards putting this in place. But of course, there's a hard road ahead.
1: And Mariti, the talks in Nairobi, do you have a sense that they're going to be able to agree on, particularly this very central issue, the TPLF, Tigrayan forces disarming within a few weeks? Isn't that a big ask? I think it wouldn't be easy. I think um, that is the central concession. It is one that has
0: stirred quite a bit of Tigrayan discontent, including in the diaspora. I imagine also it might also in the rank and file within the Tigray fighting forces. But I think two things will be interesting to watch. One is the level at which the federal forces agreed to absorb some of the Tigrayan fighters into the military, and secondly, whether there is any flexibility in terms of the timing of the full disarmament of the forces, given what a complex war this has been, given the number of young people under arms, and whether the authorities can act with considerable magnanimity, make sure they are accounting for Tigrayan concerns and therefore not stirring fresh discontent within Tigray. It's very delicate, it will be difficult, but it's still very encouraging that the parties have agreed to this.
1: And we'll come in a moment to some of the things that Prime Minister Abiy, that the federal government might do to build on this secession of hostilities. But Mariti, clearly the military balance has changed dramatically over the past few months over the course of this latest offensive. But still, I think maybe the degree of, Tigrayan concessions took people aback. Had the balance of force changed so much that the TPLF felt that they really needed this deal or risked being wiped out, as we heard up top, that last time in the early stages of the war that they were under pressure, even lost Mekele, the Tigrayan capital, they sort of retreated to the countryside and mounted an insurgency. So what, this time around, they didn't even think that that was possible.
0: There's no question this was a piece that was won on the battlefield and this unfortunately is in keeping with Ethiopian history. It tends to be that there's a culture of domination and very little accommodation. And so the dynamics certainly seem to have changed over the last couple of weeks. I think we have to be quite blunt here. The Tigray leadership miscalculated badly in not going to talks when they seem to have held a better hand uh, over the last couple of months when they had a lot of international goodwill, when they had fought their way into securing most of Tigray and ousting most of the forces out of the region. The turning point appears to have come in the battles in Shire in mid-October. Shire is hugely symbolic. It's not only a very strategic uh, crossroads, but also it is the place where Mengistu um, Mariams this long-serving, brutal dictator in the 70s and 80s, it is the place where his forces lost in 1988 and 89. And so the moment the Tigrayan defences collapsed in Shire, it seemed the writing was on the wall. I think it was only a matter of time before the combined federal, Eritrean and Amhara forces marched into Mekele. And what the Tigray forces appear to have done is calculated that even if they potentially could have continued a bit of an insurgency, it would not have served any strategic purpose. It seems they were forced into this agreement, and that raises questions about the durability of the agreement to a certain degree. Uh, But most certainly, the Ethiopian federal forces had the clear upper hand over the last couple of weeks.
1: And um, among Tigrayans, Mariti, do we have a sense of sort of how people view the deal, both in Tigray and obviously in the diaspora? I mean, the TPLF in Tigray itself have traditionally had a pretty tight grip, right, and they also enjoyed a lot of support when they were fighting federal forces, the Eritreans, the Amhara, in large part because of the way that Eritrean forces in particular were behaving. But will that support among Tigrayans endure uh, in the face of this deal?
0: There's been a huge sense of relief among many Ethiopians at the end of this war. Uh, But yes, you do certainly see quite significant signs of discontent within the Tigrayan population and especially within the Tigrayan diaspora. They are very alarmed by the really uh, significant concessions that the TPLF leadership made. I think a couple of things will be worth watching. One is that the authorities say that they'll pull together through dialogue and interim administration to govern Tigray. How inclusive that will be how representative of broad Tigrayan um, sentiment and the wider Tigrayan constituencies, including the opposition leaders um, in Tigray, that will be really important. I think, secondly, how the authorities conduct themselves. As you say, they were misguided in the way they approached the war. In the first phase, the atrocities committed by all parties, but especially by the Eritreans and also uh, by the Amhara forces, that galvanised Tigrayan opposition and Stimulated a very significant insurgency. So how will they behave this time? Will there be greater magnanimity? Will there be, as the agreement stipulates, swift restoration of services and humanitarian access? And then finally, how you resolve some of the really nettlesome uh, problems, including the territorial disputes, most prominently with what the Tigrayans call Western Tigray what the amhara knows walkite which is this very fertile uh, neighbouring region between Amhara and Tigray that is bitterly contested by both. So there's a lot up in the air. I think it behooves the actors to learn from their mistakes in the past to really understand this is a fragile deal. It's a deal that's worth saving and cultivating, but it will take very delicate diplomacy and very intelligent stewardship uh, for this to last.
1: Richie, can I just ask about the, as you say, anger among some in the Tigrayan diaspora? And still to be seen, I mean, it's very difficult to tell how Tigrayans' in Tigray itself will view the deal, and much, as you say, will depend on how the federal government now behaves, whether people see benefits from the secession of hostilities. But this anger among the diaspora, if there is anger among Tigrayans in Tigray itself, how much does that actually matter? I mean, there isn't an alternative except for the TPLF in terms of actually picking up weapons, right? I mean, there aren't other Tigrayan-armed movements that could sort of forcibly reject the secession of hostilities.
0: It's a good point, And I would say that first, of course, we know very clearly what the diaspora thinks. We have much less of an idea what people within Tigray uh, feel and how they perceive this agreement. There's been a, a communications blockade in Tigray. I would imagine that there will, of course, be a sense of relief among a population that suffered very considerably over the last couple of years. So what might happen in terms of the political direction of Tigray? Indeed, yes, the TPLF has been dominant, dominant for decades. They run a very tight ship. They have very few serious uh, opponents, but there are different currents of opinion. Both within the TPLF, there may be different currents of opinion within the military um, uh, forces, and there are very vocal opposition forces that feel that their voices were subsumed amid this war and where everybody essentially needed to rally behind the TPLF. So it's delicate. I think it's really important that to avoid stimulating some sort of homegrown insurgency, as I said, that the federal authorities need to behave with magnanimity, I think it's really essential um, that you don't really impose again an administration completely beholden to the authorities in Addis Ababa. But yes, I think it's unlikely that you see an immediate return to war. You don't really see a cohesive movement that might properly instigate um, intra-Tigrayan fissures.
1: So let's talk then about the federal government, about Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed's government. So what, just a year ago, Tigrayan forces had beaten back federal forces, the Eritreans, the Amhara, from Tigray itself and were marching south. In essence, they were... uh, few hundred kilometers from the capital, from Addis Ababa. That was just a year ago. And now Tigrayan leaders have accepted the secession of hostilities and agreed to disarm. I mean, that's a pretty dramatic turnaround over the past year. I mean, how's the mood in Addis? Is there any appetite for the sort of measures that you were talking about? An interim government that's inclusive, maybe a bit of flexibility on the timeline with disarmament, getting in humanitarian aid, making sure that Tigrayan farmers can get back to their land quickly Uh, making sure that there is a peace dividend for Tigrayans?
0: So, Richard, it's a complex picture. One of the striking aspects of this latest phase of fighting is how little information there's been. There's almost been no propaganda war, especially waged from the federal side, where, unlike in the past, when they were really communicating, they were boasting about crushing the Tigrayans. Of course, it seems that that was an act of folly. Uh, But then... This time, they waged the war in silence. We've had very
1: little from them. Maruti, here you're talking about really the last few weeks of offensive, right, in comparison to the early stages of war where they whipped up a lot of anti-Tigrayan sentiment. So basically, in essence, the last couple of months of fighting have been conducted in a completely different sort of information environment.
0: That's exactly right. And so, of course, in Addis, a lot of government supporters will see this as victory. We've seen on social media some um, uh, senior ranking officials basically declaring that they, the Ethiopian government, the Ethiopian people have prevailed that this is a very significant victory. Prime Minister Abiy's first statement in response to the agreement in Pretoria was not particularly magnanimous. You know, he hailed the sacrifices of the Ethiopian National Defence Forces. He spoke about that the country was now ready to move on. But a couple of days later, thankfully, he also issued a statement and a speech where he was much more accommodating, much more reflecting of the suffering that the Tigrayans have suffered and spoke about stitching the country back together. I think it's very encouraging. We've seen the National Security Advisor, Redwan Hussein, who's been quite prominent both in the negotiations um, in Pretoria and those that have followed in Nairobi, discussing and saying that This is a time to move on. War is very painful. It's it's really time to pull everyone together. I think, of course, the proof of the pudding will be in the eating. And the question is, one, to what degree will they genuinely recognise that the way this war was conducted by the various actors very much alienated Tigrans from the body politic and f- made them feel that they were not a part of Ethiopia. You'll recall the mass roundups of Tigrayans when the TPLF forces were bearing down on Addis. There's been a lot of hate speech. There's been mutual delegitimization. And so it won't be so easy to stitch the fabric of society together. And I think one other thing to note is that the Abiy administration came to office with a fairly strong mandate, let's remember, very high uh, numbers of votes they garnered at the last election, even if they were essentially running against like-minded parties. But they've been able to blame all the domestic problems on the war, the suffering among the population in terms of the economic pain. I remember being in Addis and asking people, you know, how come the high levels of inflation, even then, uh, ahead of the election, were not really an electoral issue? And they said that it's because... Everybody blames the the TPLF, the war and perfidious Westerners for, uh, you know, sanctions as they call them and for trying to undermine Ethiopia. So the government essentially could blame the war for everything. Now they really will have to start governing. I think it's in their interest to try and put the war behind them. So they do have a self-interest in implementing this, but as we'll discuss, there are complex electoral constituencies, complex support bases, not least the Eritreans and and the Amhara uh, that have fought very heavily in this war that probably will have their doubts about the peace agreement. So there's a lot of deft political manoeuvring to be done, but there's a clear self-interest in the authorities implementing the deal.
1: And Mariti, beyond the government's public statements and sort of, as you say, the need for magnanimity. How do you think that people around Abbey view the war itself in light of the secession of hostilities, a truce that very favourable to Addis? Do they feel vindicated? Obviously, they've come in for some understandably harsh criticism from Western capitals about the way that the war's been conducted.
0: When you speak to people in Addis, they really strongly object to what they see as especially a Western Uh, characterization of this war as some sort of war of choice by an African leader that went out there to try and destroy a minority. They see that as simplistic and ahistorical. They point out that the TPLF governed for many years was bitterly resented by many Ethiopians and when it was shunted out of power, it decided to retreat in a Salk to Mekele and to try and undermine the Abiy administration and also essentially to try and overthrow him. So um, they strongly object to the way this war has been characterized. And at the end of the day, when you look at the situation today, many people have made predictions about this conflict, but an Ethiopian, an older Ethiopian diplomat uh, pointed out to me months ago that you must always remember that Prime Minister Abiy has a state behind him. He has external backers. And he has substantial and broad support of the Ethiopian population, even if that support is not particularly deep. Uh, but paradoxically, that support draws from the war and from the way that they perceive this war, which is very different from the way it is seen in the West.
1: So, if in some ways many Ethiopians' sort of discontent at the economy was kept at bay by the war, in sort of a similar way, the potential friction between Abiy's government or Abiy himself and Amhara leaders was also papered over by the conflict with a sort of shared enemy that while that fight persisted Amhara elites would sort of continue to support Abiy. Now obviously there's many different views among the Amhara but sort of broadly speaking how are Amhara leaders viewing the secession of hostilities? I guess for now they get to keep Western Tigray or Walkaya the disputed area you mentioned earlier. Resolution of that has been punted to some sort of political process not defined in the future. But do you get a sense that uh, Amhara leaders would have preferred a more decisive defeat of the TPLF?
0: So, of course, as we remember, Abiy came to power in part due to this coalition of protesters that initially started with the Oromo, the biggest ethnic group within Ethiopia, very substantial protests actually that were almost encircling Addis Ababa.
1: Abbi himself is a Romo or part a Romo.
0: Yes, he identifies as Oromo and the the Oromo protesters also then received very substantial backing from the Amhara, the second largest Community, But it was always a very difficult act and will continue to be a very difficult balancing act, reconciling the interests of the Oromo and Amhara elite. How is this deal viewed? Of course, we don't really know. It, it will take time um, uh, to see where the chips fall. But I think it's important to remember that there is a diversity of opinion within the Amhara elite. Of course, there will be those within the ultra-nationalist uh, wing that would have preferred a much more crushing victory. But there will also be a substantial, pragmatic, uh, mainstream elite within Amhara uh, opinion that was exhausted with the war, that recognised the war was very costly, but also that understands that you need a political settlement for a durable conclusion of the contentions that led to war in the first place. So I'm sure there will be a degree of nervousness. There was plenty of, um, not just Amhara, but pan-Ethiopian support uh, from Prime Minister Abiy. That has cooled somewhat. Some say that he has been quite cynical in the way he has made alliances, broken alliances, refashioned alliances as he has attempted to consolidate power. I would be surprised though if mainstream Amhara elite opinion does not really go along with the peace deal. They understand that uh, peace is much better than war. It's probably not really sustainable to completely crush your opponents. And let's remember there were prominent Amhara around the negotiating table for many months. Uh, the Deputy Prime Minister, Demeka Mekonen, has been the principal Ethiopian representative.
1: So, then perhaps the bigger challenge is Eritrean President Isaias Afwerki, who appears. To have seen the war as an opportunity to deal a sort of decisive blow to the TPLF, his sworn enemy. As we heard earlier, the Tigrayans and the Eritreans fought together in the 80s to oust then Ethiopian leader Mengistu Haile Miriam. Then Tigrayans and uh, Eritreans fell out badly. They fought the Ethiopia-Eritrea border war. A lot of bad blood has persisted since then. So Asmara what unlikely to welcome this deal. And there's been, what, silence from the Eritrean capital since it was signed. So I recognize, obviously, it's very difficult to know what anyone in Asmara is thinking, given how close things are. But I mean, do you have any sense of what ISIS has planned?
0: I'm glad you mentioned that, Richard, because, you know, the short answer we give when we ask asked for opinion in Asmara is we don't really know. Of course, they rarely uh, make the intentions plain. They rarely communicate what they are Actual uh, sense is of events, but we can of course deduce a couple of things. One, I think it's worth remembering that this was essentially a continuation of the Eritrea-Ethiopia border war, which let's remember was this very, very bloody two-year war fought between the Eritreans and an Ethiopia led by the TPLF at a time when both, as you mentioned, had been comrades during the war, fell out badly, and then they fought this gruesome contest that led to incredibly uh, intense bad blood. You know, speaking of agreements to end war, let's remember that the Ethiopia-Eritrea war never really ended. Tens of thousands of Eritreans were expelled from Ethiopia in the wake of the war. The same from Eritrea into Ethiopia. Bad blood endured. I think the way to look at the motivations of the various actors here is that for Abi, this was a contest of power. This was uh, basically a war motivated by his sense that the TPLF represented a threat on his hold on power in Addis Ababa, he was essentially trying to consolidate authority and power within Ethiopia. For the Eritreans, while you know they may well perceive it as existential, but unfortunately there was a slightly more sinister motive here, which can only be the conclusion we draw from the way they conducted themselves in the early phases of the war, that this was one of vengeance. And so the goals of Asmara and Ababa contrasted. And Ethiopia obviously recognises that the Ethiopian government recognises that for it to have a chance to bring the country back together, to have a national consensus on a way forward, to avoid a perpetual war within Tigray, they needed a deal. I'm not sure that's a perspective that's shared within Eritrea. I think some people have mentioned it will be interesting to see how Asmara reads the kind of administration that is fashioned within Tigray, the continuing role of the TPLF, how many, for example, Tigrayan fighters are absorbed into the armed forces. We'll need to assess it very carefully. But yes, it remains a significant unanswered question. How has Mara viewed this and how they will perceive the way forward?
1: the Mariti relations between Abbey and Isaias? At times over the past few years, I mean, really since the peace deal that Abbey signed with Isaias in 2018, so before the start of the Tigray War, and for which Abbey won the Nobel Peace Prize, really since then Isaias has appeared to exert quite a bit of influence over Abbey. But that's not necessarily a maybe a relationship that Abbey, maybe he's having some second thoughts about it. I mean, does that really serve his interests? Do you get the sense that not crushing the TPLF, when perhaps he could have done, Abiy is sort of hedging against Isaias. What should we expect from the Abiy-Isaias relationship over the coming years?
0: Again, Richard, we have to be cautious about the way we read some of these dynamics, just because, as I said, the actors have not been very communicative themselves. Even their allies have been quite quiet. So it's still a bit of a mystery how the various actors are making their own calculations. I think... Abi will have seen it as a victory that he managed to keep the Eritrean question out of the agreement, because that might have immediately stirred a response from the Eritreans.
1: Why do you think the TPLF went along with that? I mean, why do you think they didn't insist on Eritrean forces out? There is a sort of reference to Ethiopian sovereignty that I guess gets at that point. So... There could
0: be two potential explanations. One is that there could be a tacit agreement to leave the Eritrean peace out because the federal authorities preferred it that way, and therefore there could be a tacit agreement that that will be handled in a much more quiet fashion. Uh, but the second, of course, explanation could be that the federal authorities held such a commanding position, especially given their recent military victories. And so they could essentially dictate the terms of the agreement. Um, but just coming back to Abiy and Desires, just to say that there will be no easy way forward. I think Abi will be grateful for the role that the Eritreans have played. I don't think he'll want to cut that alliance immediately. But of course, it also depends on how the Eritreans behave. If the Eritreans seem to be actively trying to sabotage the agreement, actively uh, engage in hostilities and promote various militias within Ethiopia, then that alliance will free. Of course, there's an even more ambitious assessment which some of the more optimistic voices uh, put across when the eritrean ethiopian peace deal was signed in the months before war broke out, which is that abbey and desires of this grand plan to eventually form some sort of loose economic confederation. You know, some of the more optimistic voices say that you could eventually, if they can work their way through this current impasse, that you could have a future uh, of deeper economic integration. I am a bit sceptical because the Eritian rulers are a much more security focused rather than economic focused uh, elite, as we know, and probably tragically for their people. I will be surprised, I'll wait to be surprised if that materialises. But the short answer is that a lot really depends on what happens in the next couple of weeks and months, how this deal is implemented, how Abiy is able to manage its relations with, with the Eritreans. But we have to remember that Tigrayan public opinion will also be crucial. Their opinion will remain very inflamed if Eritrean presence remains on Ethiopian soil and on Tigrayan soil. So I think Abiy will need to manoeuvre very deftly. He'll need to, I think, eventually make sure he persuades the Eritreans to withdraw in essentially in exchange for the Tigrayan disarmament.
1: So you imagine them withdrawing completely or withdrawing back to the areas that they held around the time of the last ceasefire? I mean, areas that Eritrea itself claims in some cases
0: it would be very difficult to conceive in the short run the Eritreans withdrawing beyond what they claim is Eritrean territory. So even if, especially they were to withdraw from Western Tigray or Al-Qaeda, as as it's known in Amhara, They would only withdraw from that area if they felt confident enough that the Ethiopian forces would continue in that region and would especially prevent any uh, direct line opening between any potential insurgency in Tigray and Sudan. And if they withdrew north, one would imagine that they would withdraw uh, to land that they claim um, is, is Eritrean. But I think, Richard, there will continue to be very bad blood if... One party feels that it's been subjugated, that it's been forced into what are essentially surrendered terms. So this is a time for wisdom. It's a time when we need to see a greater role for external mediators in trying to build peace. I think it's a time of pragmatism, uh, but also of recognizing that imposing victor's terms will only postpone the next round of conflict and will not yield a durable
1: solution. Presumably also not just that it won't be durable over the long term, but that the continued presence of Eritrean troops in Tigray is also going to be a sort of disincentive for Tigrayans to disarm. It's easy to see how Tigrayans would be wary of leaving themselves defenceless if they don't have some sort of guarantees about what Eritrean forces are going to be doing.
0: The whole question of security guarantees will hang over this deal. The authorities in Addis argue that you can't have any country with two defence forces. In fact, they strenuously object to the very use of the word defence forces, saying it it represents the TPLF's failure to accept central authority. Um, Their second argument is that given that most of the fighting has stopped, that gives the lie to this claim that they were there to commit atrocities to target civilians. But then people have memory. And most Tigrayans, of course, have very, very bitter um, recollections of the behavior, especially of the historical force of the Tigray region, the Eritrean uh, forces, and the Amhara forces. The way they conducted themselves, the atrocities they committed, obviously have created anxiety, and they will want to see greater and more substantial guarantees that those atrocities will not be repeated. Of course, the most practical way to try and offer those will be simultaneous disarmament and Eritrean especially withdrawal from Tigray. I think whether that occurs will make or break this deal potentially.
1: Rishi, could we talk a little bit about the African Union and other outside powers that were involved in pushing for this secession of hostilities. So I remember a few weeks ago talking to someone about what the AU mediator, former Nigerian President Olushigan Obasanjo, was up to, that he was in Lagos, in, in Nigeria, he wasn't in the Horn, that he didn't really have a team. It just sort of seemed at the time that the AU wasn't really making very serious efforts to end the war. And yet now there is this AU-brokered secession of hostilities how much credit should the African Union take, should obasanjo take for, for that? Or was it more a case of the AU waiting until there was a deal available that was more on Abby's terms?
0: It's a tough one. I think what we can say is that all actors could have done much more to prevent this war lasting so long, to prevent it exacting such a huge cost in terms of Ethiopian stability, in terms of the terrible loss of lives on all sides. Um, the AU was, first of all, we have to recognize in a fairly difficult position when war broke out. The uh, African Union sits in Addis Ababa, uh, what is often called the capital of Africa. As you know, most multilateral organizations tend to struggle in dealing with problems in bigger member states. But I still think we have to direct quite substantial criticism to, to the AU, especially for not taking enough of an active mediatory role uh, from the beginning. I think certainly there's a perception that they doddled, they took their time, they were too different to the wishes of Addis Ababa. Uh, Again, I say this recognising that they were operating in a difficult context. And I think that the AU, I think they deserve credit. I think they offered a very good Auspices for talks, they offered their good offices. I think, um, you know, they nominated quite early on a prominent statesman, as you mentioned, to lead the peace talks. But they could have pressed the parties harder, could have done a better job to condemn the atrocities, to bring the parties together sooner rather than wait until the last moment. They ultimately came up with the goods, but they could have done so earlier.
1: And there seems to have been quite a bit of US pressure, certainly in recent months behind the scenes to get this to happen?
0: So we have to consider this at the end, a, a triumph of coordinated diplomacy. So the U.S. applied a lot of quiet pressure. They helped to try and build up trust between the parties. They brought the Tigrayans and the federal forces together. They learned from their earlier mistakes when the U.S. concentrated too much on megaphone diplomacy, on putting out condemnatory tweets, um, and, and did the, a lot of hard work in the background. And we have to give credit to the EU through its um, uh, envoy, Annette Weber, the US envoy, Mike Hammer, the UN uh, special envoy, Hannah Tete. All of them really applied themselves very hard behind the scenes in trying to build up trust among the parties. Uh, But then the Western actors recognized that in this context, you needed African leadership. They took a step back left it to the AU to lead the talks. We have to give a special mention to the South Africans for hosting the talks, and especially to the Kenyans as well, uh, particularly President Ruto, uh, who appointed um, former President um, Uhuru Kenyatta to lead the talks.
1: Maurice, actually, I'd like to talk about two other powers that weren't involved in pushing towards the secession of hostilities, but were quite involved in supporting Abbey and their support, you know, arguably pivotal when in that moment that we talked about towards the end of last year, when... Tigrayan forces were closer to what appeared to be sort of closing in on Addis. And that's first of all the United Arab Emirates and secondly Turkey. And it's interesting to talk a little bit about them because these sort of more assertive middle powers are really a feature of peacemaking and of geopolitics in many parts of the world. I mean it may be just interesting to say we could start with the, the Emirates but the relations between Mohammed bin Zayed The Emirati leader and Abi seemed to be pretty good and what the Emirates were really sort of went all in in supporting uh, Abi with weapon supplies, with diplomatic support. Do you want to say a word or two about why Abu Dhabi views Abi as sort of such a partner?
0: I think when people reflect back on this war and we have to be careful not to talk about it in the, in the, in the past tense, you know, we have, we necessarily have to be optimistic and hope that the, the worst fighting is behind us. But there will be a lot to unpick from the international relations perspective. I think. It was a war fought in an age when American hegemony is fading. So the Americans played a critical role in trying to fashion a deal in the end. But we saw a very prominent role by middle powers and most prominently, as you mentioned, by Turkey and the UAE. The UAE decided very early on that they were going to bet on Abbey for reasons that are not clear uh you know some speculate that the emiratis view and to a certain degree the saudis view the horn of africa and essentially um the whole um uh, red sea as their western flank and so they're very keen to cultivate Um, um, uh, allies across the band from Cairo to Khartoum to Addis Ababa and on to Mogadishu. So for them, they saw Abiy as an inspiring um, figure, fairly charismatic with especially initially very substantial public support and they decided they would bet on him. There was a lot of American pressure for them to pull back, especially after the Democrats won um, the White House. They did that for a brief period, but then came back with a very significant surge of support that eventually helped Abiy to roll back the Tigrayan advance.
1: And the pressure that you talked about when the Biden administration first sort of settled into power, this pressure on the Emiratis to stop arming the federal government, that coincided with the Tigrayan counteroffensive, right? The advances towards Addis. And similarly, as the Emirates, Turkey, we'll talk about Ankara in a moment, as they ramped up their support to Abiy again, federal forces were able to advance. So obviously, there was a lot else that was happening on the battlefield in Ethiopia itself. But should we see some of this external support as decisive?
0: Yes and no. Um, to a very large degree, Abi survived because he could call on a very substantial level of support within the Ethiopian population and a resistance to the prospect of the Tigrayans coming back to power in Addis. So there was massive mobilisation, there was an, a big effort to rally tens of thousands of recruits, and they were very instrumental in pushing back the Tigrayan advance. But yes, the Eritrean military and The 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 weaponry that the Eritreans uh, the Emirates supplied the financial support was really important. But also we have to be careful that the Tigrayan advance did not really materialize because you know the Americans got the the Emirates to back down to pull back their drone support and everything. It was primarily because of the galvanised. Tigrayan resistance to what they perceived as hostile occupation in Tigray, especially by the Eritreans and the Amhara and the Ethiopian National Defense Forces. The atrocities committed the huge public support. So it's a complex picture, but this external element is not irrelevant it was complementary. It was a part of the picture, but above all, the domestic factors uh, were critical.
1: And so the Turkish support proved important in particular in the supply of these famous Turkish drones, the Barakhtar drones. So for, for, for Ankara, I mean, Abbey also an ally. It's unusual that you have Ankara and Abu Dhabi back in the same side in a war. But for Turkey, Abbey also a sort of increasingly important partner in the, in the horn.
0: So for Ankara, Abi and Ethiopia matter. Turkey is the second largest investor. I need to check my numbers. But after the Chinese, I'm, I'm quite sure that they are one of the biggest investors in Ethiopia. Very substantial stakes, not just in Ethiopia, but in the wider Horn of Africa, also, within Turkey, a calculation that it is often destabilising to topple leaders. And, you know, when you speak to them off the record, they say that that's the lesson you have to draw from the events in Libya and the civil war that followed.
1: It's interesting that a Turkish official told you that now, Maritim, the dangers of toppling leaders. I mean, Turkey's hardly been averse over the past decade to support protest movements, even revolutions in some countries.
0: There's an irony there, actually. In fact, um, just to complicate the picture a bit more, it tends to be that Turkey will support elements of the Muslim Brotherhood in countries that are overwhelmingly Muslim and where, therefore, Turkey has an ideological stakes in the battle. Um, but in 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 the case of Ethiopia, they seem to have gone uh, full bore behind Abiy. They seem to have decided to back him. But also we have to remember that this was, um, you know, and maybe this is ascribing too much cynicism. It was an extension of their drone diplomacy, a, a demonstration that they are very capable at producing weapons, weapons that are quite effective on the battlefield, and, you know, the tax, as you know, Richard, they have boasted openly that everyone now is inquiring about how to purchase their Parakta drones. But there's another player that we have to note. The Chinese have been a quiet player in this picture. They have tried to stimulate talks between the Tigrayans and Addis Ababa. They were very shocked by the killing of the former Ethiopian, well-regarded former Ethiopian Foreign Minister, Sayem, Sayum Mesfin, who was also a foreign minister, uh, an ambassador of Ethiopia. Uh, to China, uh, and generally dismayed by the war, dismayed by the instability, which was really affecting very substantial Chinese investment in Ethiopia. You know, the Chinese have often seen Ethiopia as a place where they could relocate as China grows more prosperous, as a place where they could go for cheap labor. So the Chinese were alarmed and dismayed by the war. They were very cautious, but eventually they also calculated that they needed to fall behind Addis Ababa. The Chinese foreign minister visited Addis at a time when Western missions were pulling their citizens out um, with the capital seeming to be under threat um, from the Tigray forces. And that won them quite a bit of credit from the Ethiopian government, but they also maintained lines of communication with the Tigrayans. So the Chinese played an interesting um, a game here. Uh, but yes, the Turks and the Emiratis very much threw their weight fully behind Abiy.
1: Mariti, can I ask a sort of broader question? Sort of reflecting back, well, wind back to when Abiy came to power a few years ago, there was this enormous sense of optimism in Ethiopia. And it was a time also of optimism in in Sudan when there was this sort of change of guard in Khartoum as well. How did things sort of unravel so badly in Ethiopia? I mean, looking back, what do you see as the pivotal moments, the main mistakes that Ethiopian leaders made that led to this really catastrophic war, phenomenal levels of killing in Tigray? So looking back, what could, what should have been done differently?
0: It depends on how much time you have, Richard, because I could speak about this all day. You know, <laughs> I've reflected with quite a bit of anguish about, you know, as you say, moments of hope, moments of opportunity that were really squandered by elites, not just in in, in Sudan, uh, but also in Ethiopia. I would say a couple of things. Reflecting back on the protest movements, one of the worrying signs about the Ethiopian protest movement was that it was an almost entirely negative one. It was spurred by resentment and anger against the Tigray People's Liberation Front. It was an effort to end the dominance of the TPLF. It was a demand uh, for greater representation uh, by other communities within Ethiopia. Uh, Yet in Sudan, we had more hope because theirs was very focused on the future. I remember somebody mentioning to me that they spent a bit of time in Addis, a bit of time in Khartoum. In Addis, everybody was talking about the past and about their grievances. And in Khatoum, everybody was talking about the future and about their hopes. So in some ways, it was not completely um, shocking that the Ethiopian transition devolved into this vicious conflict. But still, it, it was eminently avoidable. What mistakes did the elites do? I think there were plenty, but I think the principal one, when we look at Prime Minister Abiy, he came in with enormous goodwill. He came in with a lot of support across the political divide. Perhaps he could have been more generous with the Tigrayan elite. Perhaps he could have progressed more deliberately. And cautiously with his very quick formation of of the Prosperity Party, which replaced the EPRDF, the long ruling uh, coalition that was dominated um, by the TPLF. And he launched this anti-corruption drive, uh, a lot of uh, rhetorical attacks against his political opponents that could not accept their loss of power, that wanted to force their way back into office. The Tigrayans also miscalculated catastrophically. They lost an internal election within the EPRDF. Um, The various uh, elites banded against their favorite candidate. But then the Tigrayans were perceived as arrogant, as completely rejecting Abiy's rise to power, um, uh, the, the leader of the um, uh, the Tigrayan the TPLF in in um, said to the, the the Financial Times that he openly told Abiy that you are immature, you don't deserve to be in office, and you know we don't recognize you. In, in essence, they retreated in a sulk to Mekele. They openly prepared for war, staged this massive parades, completely rejected the Ethiopian-Eritrea peace deal. This has been a war of narratives. The Tigrayans say that Abiy was always out to get them, that he engaged in ways that were polarizing intent on marginalizing them. When we speak to the authorities in Addis, they say that the Tigrayans' fomented rebellions, worked with partners to light fires across um, the Ethiopian territory and could not stomach their loss of power. In the end... All these parties walked with their eyes wide open into a war which has been really catastrophic, which has left Ethiopia weaker than it was before the war. Addis is presiding over a wobbling economy um, that is in critical need of support. The TPLF was chafing about its loss of power. But what do they have now? Almost nothing. We have to reflect that the only party that has achieved um, its goals in in very cruel fashion has been the Eritreans in very substantially moving in against the TPLF, degrading their capacity, uh, essentially marginalising them from their hold on power, but at what cost to the Tigrayan people. This has been a really, really gruesome war. It's one that should have been avoided, and everybody will reflect with regret about it.
1: So, Maruti, you mentioned these differences between the mood among protesters, people on the streets in Sudan and those in Ethiopia. Sudanese looking forward, as you say, Ethiopians back, or at least angry at the TPLF. But there is sort of a common thread in how both the transitions have unraveled some of the challenges they face. And it should hardly be a surprise. It's a sort of common thread, to, I think, to most transitions. It's about sort of managing the old guard. So in Ethiopia, the TPLF, in Sudan, the military especially, you know, some of those who'd held power around Bashir, some newer military leaders. I mean it's sort of a a variation of the the peace justice type tension, I mean not necessarily justice in terms of accountability, although you know there have been efforts of that and at anti corruption, but a sort of tension between trying to get to a more just, more equitable distribution of power and resources, a tension between that and managing the interests and expectations of former ruling elites and keeping them on board. Is that fair? Is that sort of an accurate reading of one of the challenges at the core of both transitions?
0: It's an excellent point. And I I would say that um, when you look back across the sweep of history, especially on the continent, it's very, very rare that you have armed movements that fight their way to power, leaving power uh, peacefully and essentially voluntarily. And I think that in Ethiopia, but also in Sudan, there's a failure on all our parts, internally within Ethiopia and Sudan, but also externally in terms of the whole region and the wider community, to recognize that those were completely unfinished transitions. If you could turn back the clock, you would definitely behave differently. I think there would have been much better understanding that the TPLF was nursing its wounds, it had deep grievances, and had left power essentially very reluctantly, and that relationship needed to be uh, dealt with very carefully and and skillfully, and that didn't happen. In Sudan, there was an abject failure, especially on the part of the international community, to recognize that the Islamists around Bashir and his security apparatus were only biding their time. They wanted the civilians to fail and they were always going to try and seize power. So how to make that prospect less likely? I think a swifter lifting of the, the sanctions and the, the state sponsor of terrorism designation against Sudan, a surge of support to Prime Minister Hamdok, who took over after Bashir, and, and, and greater investment in the growth of the Sudanese economy so that then you would have offered dividends to the public and made it less likely that you would have The military return to power, but also even in Sudan, maybe a better and quicker counting of the interests of the military, maybe slower moves towards justice, which is very difficult to say given their history and their record. Uh, But maybe it would have been wiser to manage, as you say, um, uh, the interests and expectations of the old guard. I think that was a total failure in the management of these transitions. It really hits the cracks of of potentially why they went wrong, although it doesn't mean that they still wouldn't have gone wrong, but more could have been done to Prevent
1: a total descent into disaster. Mariti, could I ask about Horn of Africa politics, about sort of regional politics more broadly? Uh, we talked a little bit about this last time you were on, but if you sort of go back just over a decade, what Meles and Awi, long serving Ethiopian leader, Tigrayan, died in what, 2012. And at that time, Ethiopia was you know, not the hegemon in the horn, but it was the sort of regional heavyweight. Pretty good relations between Addis and Nairobi with Kenya. Not bad relations between Meles and Omar al-Bashir in Sudan. Towards the end of Melez's tenure, Ethiopian diplomats sort of encouraging the West to be more open in their relations with Bashir. At the same time, Eritrea sort of well and truly boxed in, sanctioned, and Ethiopia really the sort of trusted partner of the West in counterterrorism operations in Somalia, in other things as well. So fast forward to to where we are today and obviously things look quite different you've got the Ethiopian relations with Sudan really not good even with Kenya there have been some strains Abiy and Kenyatta reportedly didn't get along and Isaias in Eritrea sort of emboldened at least from where he was some years ago so if you think about this sort of regional political picture I mean what should we be watching now after the secession of hostilities and sort of what should we be watching over the next few years? So it
0: tends to be, Richard, that every couple of decades you have transitions within the Horn of Africa. Let's remember just uh, in the early 90s, you had relatively new leaders in almost every country in the region by Djibouti. And it took a lot of time and work to build trust and relations between them. Um, The Sudanese, of course, were quite close to Meles, but then Meles nearly tried to topple Bashir in 1995 after an assassination attempt on the Egyptian president Hosni Mubarak in Addis Ababa. And so it took many years to build relations between all the parties. Moi, uh, the Kenyan president, was quite suspicious of and Zenawi. And so um, there was a significant distrust between all the parties. It took a lot of time. It took a lot of time also for even Meles to consolidate power within Ethiopia. So Placed in this historical context, I think it has been a wasted two years, it has been a tragic two years, uh, but now it really behoves the leaders to try and rebuild trust. It was encouraging that we saw an Ethiopia-Sudan heads of state summit in the recent meeting of the region of Bloc, Igad. um, We hear that Abiy has relative good relations with President Ruto in Kenya. He didn't really have terrible relations with Kenyatta, but... Those relations were tested um, amid this conflict. And and so it, the hope now is that these players, having seen the cost of this war, will try and stimulate better relations between themselves. Um, if you can restore relations between Ethiopia and, and, and Nairobi, between Addis Ababa and Khartoum, make sure that they uh, build this now, opening with the new president in Somalia, have re- good relations between all of them you might see um, you know greater stability within the wider region. Ethiopia may not have been a hegemon but it has been exporting stability for the last couple of decades and so lasting peace in that country which is by far the biggest by far the most populous in the region by far the most important security actor will be a relief for the region although the regional question will remain a puzzle.
1: Mariti, thanks so much for coming on again.
0: Yeah thanks thanks Richard.
1: Hold Your Fire is a production of the International Crisis Group. I'm Richard Atwood. You can find all of our work on Ethiopia, on the Horn, on everywhere else we cover on our website, crisisgroup.org. You can also follow us on Twitter at crisisgroup. If people want a deeper dive into the long and fraught relations between Eritrea and Tigray, then I'd really recommend you check out this week's episode of The Horn a fantastic conversation with the host Alan Boswell and Michael Waldemarion who's an associate professor at the University of Maryland so do check that out thanks to our producers Kevin Murphy, Heiko Schaub and thanks of course as ever to all of you all our listeners please do get in touch podcast at crisisgroup.org or write to me directly outward at crisisgroup.org if you have any questions suggestions or concerns if you like the show please do give us a positive rating or a review say something nice about us And next week, I hope we have a special guest. First time on the show that we'll talk to someone who's actually in office. So on that note, I will leave you, I hope, full of expectation as to who that is. And I hope you'll join us for the show again next week.